Yeah, I, I could just go on forever and ever and ever. <laughs> I think we both could. I think we're, we're about to. <laughs> And welcome to A Century in Cinema. My name is Arthur. I'm a local filmmaker here in Utah, and uh, this is the last podcast I'll ever record on this computer. I'm finishing up building a new computer today. Congratulations. Thank you. That's why I'm having some computer troubles. <laughs> Understood. My name is Andrew, professional film historian, and uh, I think I was born in the wrong decade. I think I should have been born in 1500s Japan. <laughs> <laughs> this is your kind of world yeah you know the, i feel like i could thrive here i i can't i can't explain to you why because i think i would die probably pretty quickly but um i <laughs> yeah. think in my short time i would thrive <laughs> and this is a podcast where we watch and discuss a classic film that i have not seen but i most likely have from every year this week we're in 1980 we're in the 80s we're watching Ooh. kagemusha from director akira kurosawa for any new listeners, you can find where to watch our movies, where they're streaming or available to rent online. Down in the link in our show notes, I myself watched Kagemusha on the Criterion channel. They have a lot of great extra features there as well. Uh, Criterion channel. You know I got this one on the Blu-ray. I might have to pick this up on Blu-ray yeah, too. Yeah, I mean, it's such a beautiful film. It's just, yeah. But I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> In our bonus episode, available to Patreon subscribers, we're talking about our favorite and least favorite Kurosawa films. That we've seen anyways. I haven't seen all of them. I'm so close now. I'm, I'm just so close. Should we talk about the history lesson? Yeah, I'm ready. Give our listeners a little context for 1980, now that we're in the 80s. Yeah. Can I ask you, does does this just feel like we're in the modern era now? A little bit, yeah. When I think of like modern movies, I, I, I think that really starts in the 80s. 70s is old movies still. 80s feel like they're new movies. Not like new, new movies, but you know what I mean, right? Yeah, but I mean, today's like younger generation, like the kids in their teens and 20s, they definitely don't feel that way. Yeah, for our uh, film school audience, they uh, think we're old timers now. Yep. 1980. Something really strange happens this year. Uh-huh. The American public elects, by a pretty big margin, a Hollywood actor by the name of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> Now, looking over our uh, century in cinema, we usually see moments from where the outside world affects the film industry. But here we have an example where the film industry bleeds through and affects the outside world. Way back in the silent era, the star system carried Hollywood. Audiences loved their movie stars. And now, around 60 years after we were watching Douglas Fairbanks uh, star in Thief of Baghdad, uh, we, we have... Ronald Reagan, elected president. Now, Reagan got into politics before just becoming president, but I still think this is a decisive moment where we have the worlds of entertainment and politics merging. Uh, this is only a few years after Sidney Lumet's uh, network, the film, uh, was released too, which explores how the news media surrenders itself to entertainment, right? Yep. Well, what else is going on in 1980? CNN has launched the first 24-hour cable news network. So that seems pertinent. Wow. Yeah. You like you say the 80s feel like the modern era, but then that feels like that just, you know, that's forever. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere, 1980 marks the beginning of the war between Iran and Iraq after the major upheavals in the Middle East last year. John Lennon is assassinated by an obsessed fan tying back to Nashville. We talked about that. Yep. Yeah. They didn't heed his warning. <laughs> they didn't heed uh, <laughs> Altman's warning. And uh, Mount St. Helens erupts this year. In Japan, the country's been exporting and globalizing, and the Japanese economy is running full steam ahead. Now, like Hollywood, and mainly because of television, as I understand it, the Japanese film industry has gone through some really hard times recently through the 70s, and will get to its effect on famed director... Akira Kurosawa soon enough. Andrew, do you want to talk about some of the movies coming out in 1980? What do you have as your five film recommendations for our listeners? All right. So five film recommendations from 1980. First up, we're going to keep things light, easy, breezy with a Dolly Parton number. We're talking nine to five. You see nine to five? No. 
It is such a good movie. I just revisited this uh, recently because of the Kyle Rittenhouse situation. This is a movie that makes me feel good inside and is all about like these women who are working their nine to five jobs in the workplace and through a series of wacky coincidences end up running the company while the CEOs think it's still their male chauvinistic horrible boss who's running it. And (laughs) they change all these things and make life better for everybody working there. And it's, it's all about like gender equality, but it's also just a hilarious comedy because they like there's murder, there's espionage, there's lies, there's deceit, there's a ton of weed smoking. It's funny. It's a good movie. Nine to five. Nice. Highly recommended. Also, Jane Fonda produced that. And uh, it was a big moment in her career and in Hollywood that she was able to produce something on that large of a scale that was such a huge success. Nine to five was also uh, n- number two at the box office this year. So big big hit yeah mm-hmm. next up is ken russell's altered states this is a film starring william hurt as a scientist who is trying to use hallucinogenic drugs in a sensory deprivation tank to attempt to reconnect to the first version of humans in evolution the visuals in this movie are unlike anything you've ever seen it gets very trippy and it's all done practically And the way it discusses science, the fiction involved, and the third act twist. Uh, I'm going to mildly spoil this for you, Arthur. It turns into a full-on B-monster movie in the final 30 minutes. And it's so good. Like That's what I want. Such a good build-up to it. Yeah, it's a really, really fantastic film from Ken Russell's, who I've recommended some of his films in the past. And I think, because Ken Russell can be a little controversial, I think this film is a great first step into his career for people who are a little wary um, because there are moments that are a little graphic. There are moments that are kind of hedonistic as well. Um, There's some really great anti-religious imagery in this film. But for the most part, it's, you know, a very simple sci-fi plot and it's told very well with an incredible performance from William Hurt. So Hmm. Altered States, give it a look. Next up is Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One which was one of his largest budgeted war films. I really, really like this war movie. I think it's very underseen. Um, It's about a sergeant who was a veteran from World War I, now leading a squad in World War II, and him sort of dealing with his PTSD from that war and it being resurged and multiplied in this war. Um, Really fantastic performances from Lee Marvin, Mark Hamill, Robert Carradine, this is a really great film. It's very tense. Uh, it, it nails the tension aspect and, uh, yeah, it keeps you on your toes. And it's a really great film. Hmm. Uh, next up is the trash classic Dress to Kill from Brian De Palma, our boy De Palma. This is a film that I'm pretty sure I've recommended where it's his Hitchcock homage. And the whole story is Vertigo meets Psycho. And everything is shot as if it was a Hitchcock film. Everything is very, it's beautifully framed and he fills the space in a similar way. It's its his big bow down to Hitchcock. But the script is just the trashiest, dumbest thing ever. It's so fun. Uh, this, is a, this is a really fun movie. Um, yeah, Dress to Kill. A crazy performance from Michael Caine in this movie. And my final film recommendation, this is one you can just pop on. You know, it's it's not too bad. It's a 16-hour film <laughs> called Berlin Alexander Platz, directed by Reinar Vanner Fassbender. This is an adaptation of a post-World War II novel, Berlin Alexander Platz, that's considered a classic in Germany. And this movie is phenomenal. It is it is technically a TV miniseries, but many people view it as a film because it did receive a theatrical release as well. The thing that's interesting about this movie is that Fassbender read the book Berlin Alexander Platz and had a dream about the book after finishing it. And his entire career, he wanted to somehow make the dream he had about Berlin Alexander Platz into a film. So this movie is a 13-episode super faithful reconstruction of the book that tells the book vary by the numbers and it's a really engaging story it's a great show 
And then the 14th episode is this two hour long Fantasia dream sequence where all of the and he's able to pull it off because you know who all the characters are and the actors playing them. They're playing each other. They're playing other roles. And the whole thing becomes this just incredible visual feast that's also sort of a meditation on the characters and where they sit. And it's also a meditation on why this source material is so important to Fassbender in the first place. It's a 13 hour long first act <laughs> and one of the most incredible uh, movies you've ever watched. The rewards of watch sitting through all of Berlin Alexander Platz are infinite. So uh, the way I watched it was two episodes a weekend and I don't think it's that difficult to pull off. And I did it just, you know, one weekend at a time. Yeah. Berlin Alexander Platz, a great movie. Cool. Thank you for all of those recommendations, Andrew. But now we've got to mention The Shining because our friend Kagan would chew us out if we didn't mention it. Yeah. The Shining is amazing. Um, yeah. Have you have you have you seen the Brian Higgins posts where he's just over it? Yeah. You know, I'm kind of curious what's going on there. But uh... <laughs> I've had I've had like four outside conversations of like, what are we going to do about Brian deciding The Shining is bad? Like, this is <laughs> not the hill I want him to die on. <laughs> Yeah, Raging Bull comes out this year. The only good Star Wars movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, uh, 9 to 5 gets about 100 million at the box office. Uh, Doubling that at number one at the box office is The Empire Strikes Back, of course. Which is a great movie. That ending still is some high drama. Yeah. We should follow up on Michael Cimino's career, the director of The Deer Hunter, because he directs Heaven's Gate this year and his career implodes because of it. Yeah, there was a part of me that wanted to make this a film recommendation because I do very much like it, but I don't think it's the easiest movie to sit through. I think there's a reason why the studio was terrified of it and why they wanted to interfere. I am happy it exists in its full version, and I would recommend if you're going to watch it, you should watch it as is. But there are some legitimate problems with that movie. Um, and he was he was a complete egotistical maniac on that set. It was infamously like this huge flop, correct? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it feels like Hollywood is trying to make the big epics again. It's got Star Wars under its belt. There's money flowing through the town. Uh, should we talk a little bit about our film for the week? Kagemusha. Yeah. Want to give us the plot, Andrew? We got a we got a kind of a sprawling one today. I mean, three hours, three hours and like it's three stories happening at once. But I've I've gone ahead and just condensed it down into this. All right. Everyone buckle up. In 16th century Japan, during the Sengoku period, Takeda Shinjin, who is the lord of the Takeda clan and his brother, discover a petty thief who bears a striking resemblance to Shinjin himself. They agree to save this thief from crucifixion so that he can be used as a double for Shinjin. This agreement comes to fruition rather quickly when Shinjin is shot while visiting a battlefield and is mortally wounded. Shinjin demands the double be used so that the world does not know of his death for the next three years. The thief is not made aware of Shinjin being being shot, but he does start his duties as a double. He is brash and careless and thinks of it as fun. One night, the thief breaks into a jar, thinking it to be filled with treasure. When he is confronted instead with the corpse of Shinjin and finally comes to terms with the responsibility of the position, he runs away. The thief watches as the body of Shinjin is disposed into a river and overhears a group of spies ready to report what they have seen. In a wave of emotion and loyalty, the thief approaches Shinjin's brother and takes back the position of the double. The thief is able to live this double life successfully for two years and even befriends Shinjin's grandson and mistresses. The thief even gives a command that the army should not go into battle and instead should stay at the castle and keep the homeland protected, something that Shinjin wanted himself but the thief was unaware of. Shinjin's son, however, is aware that the double is fake and is dissatisfied with the order to stay in. He wishes to make an attack and take Kyoto, which was a dream that his father had that was never accomplished. In a moment of overconfidence, the thief rides Shinjin's prize horse and the horse throws him off. Once everyone is made aware that the thief is a fraud, he is banished from the house. Shinjin's son takes this chance and takes the army into battle. 
However, they are unprepared for the new technology of firearm-based warfare that the opposing army wields. Everyone is shot down and killed. The thief sees this display, and in a final desperate move of loyalty, he passionately storms at the opposing troops with a spear, and is shot down almost instantly. The thief wearily drags himself to a river and falls into it, floating past the banner of the army that is submerged beneath the rapids. Ooh. Ooh. I think I did okay. You did great. There's a lot going on. I mean, yeah. <laughs> For us Westerners, uh, this is based on true events that were happening during the warring state periods in Japan. The 1500s, when all these different samurai lords were fighting with each other for control of the the country and there's a lot of names there's a lot of places uh there's a lot of clans and it's pretty hard to keep straight i don't know how you felt but i will say this similarly to nashville this is my third time watching this film dissimilarly to nashville i still cannot give you like a full detailed plot synopsis (laughs) of everything that goes down in this thing uh but here's the thing at the center of the film it's a story about a thief who is tasked with taking over the responsibility of running the clan when the warlord that he just happens to look like passes away and that mantle that responsibility that leadership position sort of possessing him like a ghost and him running with it. And then, of course, the tragedy at the end is uh, the clan falls apart. There's still definitely relatable elements to this throughout that I was entertained. I was able to get into it. I was able to follow it. Yeah, you're able to follow the through line, I think, on first viewing. Um, It's just... There are so many details in there that you're like, okay, well, I'm sure a Japanese historian is going to watch this and be like, oh, my gosh, and just be moved by it. But for me, like that entire scene, I was just watching the pretty visuals and I have no idea what that meeting was about, why they were talking about those people, what any of that meant or why it was important. (laughs) And it's totally okay to watch it like that because you will still be totally engrossed in it. And again, that main through plot about the thief playing the double really comes through quite clear. Yeah. But I imagine it would be like if someone from China was trying to watch like Hamilton. Uh, There are so (laughs) many references to like the founding fathers and whatnot. But you're like, yeah, but the music's still pretty good. And I like these characters. (laughs) Yeah. What did you think of this? It's Kurosawa. Kurosawa is my favorite film director. I think. Every filmmaker, everyone who loves cinema has a point early on in their life when they go from just kind of casually watching movies to really thinking of film as an art. And for me, that was watching Kurosawa's films. Mm. Uh, So he'll always have that sort of special place in my heart, even though uh, there are maybe directors that I want to emulate more. Kurosawa still has sort of a anyways. I think all of his films are magnificent. There's always so much thought and love and care put into them. His devotion to uh, the history of Japan is something that, uh, as someone who is really fascinated by history myself, I always uh, really relate to. Kurosawa clearly has a love for medieval samurai culture. This is uh, part of the they call them Jidai Geki films, samurai films, and they're a lot like the Western genre in America. There's a lot of samurai films out there, uh, but Kurosawa was the director who really introduced them to the West. Uh, where was I going? Oh, this is really good. Yeah, this is this is quite good. This is just another really solid Kurosawa film. Um, most of Kurosawa's films are in black and white, though, and being able to experience his use of color as just another tool in his tool belt uh is quite fun because he wields it so well the color in this film is magnificent absolutely magnificent kurosawa himself studied i think watercolor he painted he was a he was a painter oh yeah he he loves the use of color and it's surprising that it took him this long to really start to use it most of his films like i said are in black and white from the 50s and when he was working a lot more this was not his first film in color. He had two more before this. That's what I was literally looking up. I know he had Dodeska done, and I wanted to see what the other one was. But this is the first time he uses it in a samurai film, which is what he was really known for. 
<laughs> so, okay, uh, I'm going to stop because if you just let me go on, I could just like start unraveling all of my nitty gritty Kurosawa knowledge. So what did you think of this film? You, This is your third time seeing it. So you hate it, right? Right. Yeah. Well, a few years back, I just sort of buckled down and said, I'm going to watch every Kurosawa film because everyone I see just blows my mind. And I want to see his early stuff. I want to see the stuff people say is bad. Like, I want to see it all. And I got very, very far. The really sad part about this project is that my entire intention was that the last one I was going to watch was Ikiru. And so I've still never actually seen Ikiru, even though I'm such a huge Kurosawa fan. But I I don't know why I still want to stick to it. And I didn't watch any this year. So next year, I really do need to buckle back down and be like, it's time to finish this project. Because I think I have six left total. When it was time for Kagemusha, this is one that is not considered to be that great by a lot of modern critics and audiences of Kurosawa. This is considered to be like a one of his slower ones. It's considered to be more of an experiment in color that would come to fruition more so in Ron afterwards. And while I can see those arguments, I just remember as soon as it started, I mean, the opening scene between all three of them just sitting there, I was like, well, this is the most beautiful shot I've ever seen. And they're just and and they're just talking. And it's it's like that for almost six minutes of just them sitting there talking. And it's so engaging. I love that opening scene so much. And it sets up everything about the doubles, about Shinjin, about their situation. Like it sets everything up and it's just a conversation between three people. And I like that it's such a formal, serious conversation between Shinjin and his brother. And the second the thief gets involved, it becomes way more comical and he brings this energy into it. It sort of gives you the vibe for the whole movie like there's going to be all of this rigid army stuff happening and there's going to be the real world history but there's also going to be this comical thief who is who you would be in the story you know you would just be this bumbling idiot who just finds himself in this situation and uh and he doesn't really understand the complexities of everything happening around him so yeah even just the opening scene totally gripped me and especially that dream sequence that just sent me to the moon. I mean, when I was first watching it, I, I was thinking, you know, I don't care. I don't care if people think this is a weak film. This dream sequence alone is one of the best things Kurosawa has ever directed. Just this crazy oil painted backdrop with this set of sand and water being chased by the ghost of the man he's imitating. I Yeah, the whole movie really grips me in a very in a very strong way. I'm very compelled by it. And uh, as I've said already, I don't follow the plot all the way because part of me doesn't think it's intended to. Like, I really do believe you would have to be so, so knowledgeable in Japanese history to fully understand every nuance and detail going on in this story. And I think it's just so impressive that he's able to make an entertaining film out of that because you can tell he's geeking out on the history in this thing. This is truly like a Game of Thrones situation where it's just a bunch of warlords battling for dominance. And yeah, I don't know who anyone is. And we didn't even read the books. We just watched the first season and don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> so just to give you an example of the sort of uh, slavish devotion to historical accuracy that Kurosawa has in this film, our warlord Shinjin, uh, his main rival, the antagonist of the film, Nobunaga, he will go on to unify Japan after the Warring States period. And he has this man following him around in the film. Do you remember this man? He's I think he's dressed in green, but he's yes. sort of like a lackey, right? Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about. And when Nobunaga like laughs, the, the lackey laughs with him. Um, well, that servant was in a uh, homosexual relationship with Nobunaga. And oh. it wasn't something that you could talk about openly when this film was made. I, I mean, it's just not something that the Japanese uh, public really talks about it all today. But apparently back in the 1500s, that kind of relationship between a warlord and uh, their servant was pretty common, kind of like, you know, Greek soldiers. Homosexual relationships were very open. Mm -hmm. But Kurosawa can't really express that. Still, he finds subtle ways to show you that they are close. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really does recontextualize so much about that. I I never knew that. I love that. The film is full of little things like that. I listened to the commentary and 
uh, Criterion commentary points out a lot of really interesting tidbits, and it helped me to follow the film on my second go around. Yeah, you know it's good when Arthur watched it twice before the podcast recording. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't know if I've said it in this podcast before, but I just love, 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 love stories about doubles. People seeing weird supernatural like copies of themselves yeah uh, i think about uh denny villeneuve's enemy with jake gyllenhaal i love stories like that there's this sort of primal fear that i have about seeing a double someone who looks just like you it's like you two shouldn't exist in the same universe and one of you has to die one of you has to go and i think this film kind of has an element of that although it's expressed in a very eastern Japanese way. Uh, and I was kind of surprised by some of the ideas that came through. I really thought that when our thief character took over, he was going to fail. He was going to drive the kingdom into the ground. But instead, not only is he kind of possessed by the ghost of the late warlord, but it feels like the system itself, the very act of being a leader and in charge of this clan imbues him with some sort of power some sort of supernatural authority yeah he he does a better job at running the country than than the son does that's it, like it's it's crazy it all goes down he's discovered to be a double and everything goes to ruin and then immediately the son makes a decision and then the movie's pretty much over and yep, you know yep. <laughs> you know as an audience member you're like there's just no way they're gonna survive like you don't even know about the the guns yet you don't even know about the firearms yet but you just know because of the way the plot has gone you're like this is the bad move they need to be the mountain and stay still um but i love oh my god i love that line so much when they look up in shock and say the mountain has moved and then it cuts to them on the beach with that rainbow over the water oh my oh, god it's just oh oh it's just cinema it's cinema <laughs> going back to that idea of watercolor and painting i mean that's just expertly crafted it's a beautiful shot yeah, yeah. so uh, this is just such a perfect transition i'm going to this talking point the obsession with doubles is something that is very, very common in Shakespeare plays. Yeah. And yeah. one of the reasons I love this film so much is Kurosawa at this point had already released Throne of Blood, which was his adaptation of Macbeth, and The Bad Sleep Well, which was his adaptation of Hamlet. And he had started working on Ron, his adaptation of King Lear. But at this point, it looked like that was never going to be able to be made so this is the film that came out of the failure to create Ron. And it it is like a Shakespearean piece. The way it's played, the way it has all these disparate plot lines, the way that it's based mostly in history. It really feels like he's moved on from adapting Shakespeare into creating a Shakespearean story about Japan. It has this crazy big scope, but theatrical root going for it that I just I find so compelling and you know that's kind of part of Shakespeare too is that you know you can always follow that central plot but there's always a million things going on on the side that your average viewer is never going to catch you know mm -hmm. well, clearly Kurosawa loves theater mm -hmm. loves theatricality in the way that he directs actors and the way you just watch people move a lot of his shots are really wide you see full bodies on display Instead of like close ups with faces, he really likes to move and block people around a stage, right? Mm -hmm. So loves the theater and clearly loves Shakespeare because he took so many of Shakespeare's stories and adapted them into Japanese settings. But it's absolutely worth noting that Kurosawa has a huge obsession with uh, traditional Japanese theater, the no theater. And I've known that for a while. But it was really interesting, really cool to see in Kagemusha the first time he actually includes a no performance in the middle oh, of the film. Love that. Uh, and it scene. was really, really cool to see what it actually is like. It's not like Western theater, that's for sure. <laughs> but he clearly incorporates a lot of it into his own films. Yeah, I love that scene. I've always loved that scene. Even when I when I first watched it, I remember that was the moment that gripped me the most because I, I just liked that the film was sort of capturing a lost art form and putting it into a film that can go on for eternity and sort of, 
letting, you know, any audience member who stumbles across it know what this type of theater was. Yeah. Um, and I find that I find that so fascinating. I don't know if it's like a lost art in Japan. I mean, we just definitely don't see it here in the West. Um, but yeah, there's distinct sounds used. There's distinct ways that people move. There's masks used a lot. And a lot of the makeup that you see on Kurosawa's actors looks a lot like no makeup. And that's N-O-H to spell no theater, by the way. Um, but yeah, I've never seen it before. So it was really cool to see it in this film. Yeah. And I like I like that he creates this, which, again, I kind of see as his own version of a Shakespearean epic. And then the next movie he makes, Ron, is another adaptation of Shakespeare, which ask anybody who's ever seen King Lear, ask anyone who's ever been in it, ask anyone who loves that play. They will tell you Ron is the better movie. Like Ron is incredible. It's such an amazing upgrade to that source material. Um and uh, yeah, so I yeah, I love Kagamusha. It feels like a very big point in his career. And it was a pretty big point in his career. How much do you know about Kurosawa's life leading up to this movie? Like a lot? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. Okay. Just to give listeners a little bit of context, but I'm sure they figured it out. Kurosawa was a huge Titanic director in Japanese films post-war. He was the one who introduced Japanese films to the West, really, Mm -hmm. especially with uh, Rashomon in 1950. And then went on to direct uh, many other classic films like Seven Samurai, uh, Throne of Blood, uh, huge films that got him great acclaim. Yojimbo, High and Low, Lower Depth, Hidden Fortress. Like, yeah, just did we even say Seven Samurai? You probably said Seven Samurai. Most directors in film history would kill to have Kurosawa's resume. Uh, and a lot of Western film directors who are coming up uh, and becoming popular in our time right now, 70s, 80s, really, really revered Kurosawa. And you can see it in their own work, like George Lucas. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, full disclosure, I've read Kurosawa's autobiography before, and I love it. And I have the book notated and everything. So where do you want to start? <laughs> well, I mainly talking about the period between Dodeskadin and Kagemusha. So Dodeskadin was not just his first color film. It was a film that he made with his own production studio that failed. The mm-hmm. film the film flopped. His production studio had to close and it gave him a bad reputation, which was not what he needed at that point because in 1965 he infamously directed Redbeard and after having one of the most successful artistic collaborations in all of cinema history with Toshiro Mifune, at the end of Redbeard, Mifune said, I will never work with you again because of how stressful, crazy, and... Well, how stressful and crazy the set was and how much of a dictator Kurosawa seemed to be on set. So right. after that Mifun situation, his reputation was already sort of in limbo. And Japanese film companies were really not eager to give him budgets at this point because they were scared of another big flop and of him going over time and over budget, which is so wild because that was not who he was at the beginning of his career. But this is my defense. At this point, he has already done so much. He's trying to do more. And I think that the larger his scope became, the more he was unable to work as he did before, you know? Yes. Kagemusha and Ran feel very different from the more subdued personal stories. These feel really epic and apocalyptic in a way. Uh, These films later in his career represent uh, something much bigger. Yes. So after the failure of Dodeskadin... Um, Kurosawa really felt like he was completely at the end of his rope and actually attempted suicide in 1971. Mm-hmm. And when he came out of that and was able to survive that, he went back into painting. And because that was another one of his huge passions, one of his huge passions was painting. For almost all of his films, there are paintings that exist of shots that he wanted to include you did you watch i don't know what's on the criterion channel did you watch that storyboard comparison where it shows the paintings for kagemusha versus what the actual shot looks like 
yes, I did. I scrolled through it a little and it is incredible. Uh, it's a good feature. I'll link down in the show notes to some of the paintings Kurosawa did for Kagemusha and his other films. And you can check those out. But Andrew, you can kind of go into the details. So he was brought on to direct a Hollywood project that had failed. It's called Tora Tora Tora. It came out the same year as Dedesca did. So it was a little bit before that. And after failing to direct that because of creative differences, he thought he wouldn't be able to work with Hollywood again. So he collaborated with a Russian film studio to make Dersu Zala, which was also kind of a fraught project for him and one that he one that he pretty much threw together and made in spite of not being able to make the other projects he wanted to work on, including Kagemusha. And so once Dersu Uzala was over and it also sort of flopped, he just became content with the fact that Kagemusha would never be made. So he painted so much of this movie, more than he'd ever done for any other film, because he thought he wasn't ever going to get to make it. So instead he made paintings of it. And then, lo and behold, Francis Ford Coppola comes in and says, what do you want to make? Let's make it. And he and George Lucas contributed funds and became executive producers for Kurosawa's next film, which would be Kagemusha, and which was distributed and produced by 20th Century Fox and became his first fully successful Hollywood collaboration. It's just, there's something really, there's something really inspiring about it. There's something really inspiring about Kurosawa having a 10 year long darkest night of the soul, essentially. And this, I mean, if you just look at his filmography and you look at from 1970 to 1980, you think, well, there are still all these great films and he's just at the peak of his career and he's made some of his best movies. But at the at the time, he was at the lowest point in his life. And I don't know, I think there's just something so amazing and inspiring about you know, someone dealing with depression and hardship and thinking that their career is over for 10 whole years. And then they make this, you know, they make this huge, beautiful film that's unlike anything you could, that's unlike anything I've ever seen. You know, like it's, it's still got this unique flavor. It's still a Kurosawa film. And yeah, I don't know. I find it, I find that entire story so inspiring. I love it too. That is a great story. And it's also just looking back on, the progression of how these films came out. I mean, Kurosawa had these great samurai films in the fifties that went into circulation in the West and inspired film students who would go on to produce star Wars and apocalypse now. And, uh, then they turn around and they come back to, you know, the old master and mm-hmm. after they've had their great successes i mean the the fact that star wars was inspired by hidden fortress and then only because of star wars great success 20th century fox was able to say yeah let's give money to kurosawa that japanese director uh, mm-hmm. that you like george and uh was able to produce kagemusha i mean that's just uh it feels right <laughs> yeah <sighs> yeah I don't like George Lucas as a filmmaker, but oh, okay. <laughs> I no, and th- and that wasn't I didn't sigh for that. But I'm just saying, like, I, I do appreciate him as an influence in Hollywood and as somebody who is normally pretty behind original creatives and writer directors. And yeah, I, I find that very inspiring that they uh, that they teamed up to help. Yeah, their their master make make this movie and Kagemusha really represents like the beginning of the final act of Kurosawa's career because up until Dodeskaden he had made pretty consistently a movie every year or two years then after Dodeskaden it was five years before Dursu Uzala then five more years for Kagemusha and that's pretty much how it stays he doesn't make a lot more films but this final act of his career he makes great movies right and yeah, I think this is a great way to kick it off. I mean, the next one's Ron, you know, like the next one is what I would I would hear an argument for that being the greatest film ever made. I really would. It's one of my all time favorites. And it, it yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about Ron right now because I could forever. But <laughs> for me, I think the paintings made for Kagemusha and the sort of turbulent nature of creating it helped him when it came to making Ron. 
And uh, because there's an interview you can read where he he's being interviewed right after the premiere of Kagemusha, and he talks about Ron as if it's never going to happen. He mentions this adaptation of King Lear that is never going to be able to be made, and how Kagemusha is sort of the scraps left over from it. Watching the sheer number of people move across the screen, and they're all you know fully dressed for battle in Kagemusha and Ron, uh, it's a special moment in film history because you, you got to think they will never do that again that will never right. happen again no film studio would make films like these when uh, computers can just generate entire armies this is like lord of the rings without any cgi mm. and that's just nuts i mean you watch ron and they burn down like an entire castle and it's <sighs> all on film oh, oh don't talk what? about that scene don't talk about oh, it what? <laughs> <laughs> we can't we don't have time we don't, we have, don't time. have time okay we don't have time uh <laughs> Oh, my God. I'll never forget the first time I saw that. Anyways. Well, we'll get to the very last part of Kurosawa's career in about a decade when we watch Kurosawa's dreams. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to put everything on the table right now. And for Yeah, I was saying for people who were like, when are you going to talk about the Honda collaboration? You said that at the beginning of the episode. That was actually what I meant was like in the future, like with the dreams episode, there'll be plenty <laughs> of time to discuss that. So yeah. I don't know who listens to these episodes. It's like you said you were going to say that and you never did, but that's why. <laughs> <laughs> what are our talking points? So we don't have a review from the time period. I feel like that should at least be mentioned. Right. Basically, all the film critics from the day adored this film and were excited to see more from Kurosawa. Instead of talking about a Kagemusha review, I thought it would be fun to break open the autobiography I have and see if I could find some exciting tidbits that our listeners cannot find anywhere online. Ooh, what you got for me? Okay, okay, let's see, let's see. I have not heard these yet, dear audience. I'm, I'm excited. So the last act of Kagemusha feels like we're getting into some sort of psychodrama. It really feels like Kurosawa is using uh, real historical events to make a statement about his feelings. I think that the themes expressed in this film mirror the themes expressed in Ron and the whole King Lear idea of a generation passing on their triumphs to the next generation and the next generation just squandering it. So Kurosawa was involved in 1948 in a huge labor strike against Toho Studios. Uh, all of the the studio workers at Toho went on strike and it was described in Kurosawa's autobiography almost like a war. I mean, the American military was brought in and there were tanks being used. All these film workers were refusing to to go to work and they were barring up the studio. Wow. Yeah, I know that he didn't want to work with Toho Studios for anything after after Redbeard. But here's what he has to say about the matter. After after talking about what happened, no matter where I am, the place where I received my training, that's Toho Studios, remains in a corner of my heart. And in everything I do, I can't help thinking about the currents of the river called Toho Studios. What I think about the most to this day are the assistant directors who lost their jobs in the strike. They were men with great potential, but because of the strike so closely resembled warfare their names were put down on the list of personnel cuts, and they were scattered to the winds. The Japanese film world undoubtedly lost several great directors. It goes on to say, It was actually at that point, with the firing of those young assistant directors, that the Japanese film industry began its decline. If young people are not trained and fed in to replenish the reservoir of high spirits, the natural aging process inevitably leads to a loss of strength. This is true in any enterprise. Now, the Japanese film industry is uh, incredibly conservative, and it's very rigid with its sort of mentor-apprenticeship programs. You really can't break in as a new voice and just start directing things. You really have to work your way up. That was true back in the 30s when Kurosawa first started, and that still seems like it's true today. So I think Kurosawa is really saddened and disheartened, depressed about this loss of like an entire generation of people he worked with uh, that might have happened because of this labor strike and this situation, this 
nastiness with Toho Studios after the war. Uh, and the fallout from all of that is expressed in Kagemusha and Ron, this feeling that there is no one to replace the old guard, that the next generation didn't learn what they needed to learn about the film industry and about art. And uh, a very cynical take in these two films. Yeah, I think that's I think that's uh, pertinent. It's applicable. That is just so classic Kurosawa that like he went through a hard time and he was like, oh, but the worst thing that happened was that we lost all these beautiful artists. <laughs> he says hilarious things in this biography about the censors that were uh, pressing down on the studios during the war. The following sentence was used in one of his films, quote, the factory gate waited for the student workers thrown open and longing. End quote. Okay. Okay. Censors hated it. So this is what he has to say, quote, but for the mentally disturbed censor, this sentence was unquestionably obscene. He explained that the word gate very vividly suggested to him the vagina. For these people suffering from sexual manias, anything and everything made them feel carnal desire because they were obscene themselves. Everything seen through their obscene eyes naturally became obscene. Nothing more or less than a case of sexual pathology. Nevertheless, I must say the sniffing Dobermans of the Censorship Bureau certainly underwent a full-scale domestication at the hand of the reigning powers of the day. There is nothing more dangerous than a worthless bureaucrat who has fallen prey to the trends of the times. Wow, he said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's still the problem with censors and censorship. He put it, he put it best. How about that Technicolor? <laughs> uh, like I said, it's just great to watch Kurosawa work in in color. One of the things I liked the most, because this film definitely tells a color story of its own, but especially when they all hold up the three flags for Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> yeah. Not to be confused with the <laughs> funk band. <laughs> um, when they all hold up the flags, I was like, oh my gosh, I can see how this is sort of a... Like, this was an idea he had for Ron, you know, having the three different colored armies and everything. Yeah. But, yeah, the there's a, there's a section in this film, and I love it so much, and I don't even necessarily know what is happening. And it's, the double is sitting on a mountain, and it's stark silhouettes, and in front of him is this purple blue pink explosion like firework thing happening they're clearly watching some sort of display of something but it is just one of the most gorgeous things you can ever watch and you have and you don't even necessarily need to know what's going on you're watching it like this is so beautiful like who how is he doing this like the colors are so vibrant and beautiful um yeah nobody uh nobody does technicolor quite like kurosawa and there are people who do technicolor really really well but nobody does it quite like him. He has his own he has his own way of utilizing it. And like you said, most of his films are black and white. So he views color as an actual tool and utilizes it. It's not like, oh, it's in color because it's a movie. It's like the color needs to mean something and be there for a reason. And I love that. Absolutely. And the term painting with light gets thrown around in cinematography a lot. But seeing the storyboards that Kurosawa painted for this film and just knowing his background in painting uh, like it's literal it feels mm -hmm. literal and especially the shot you just described uh the silhouettes against the night sky that's just bursting with color uh it feels so painterly and impressionistic it, it feels really unique and yeah dreamy but with that I'm looking at the time and Andrew I think we got to move to our final thoughts on this one it was always a point of excitement for us to get to the dreams episode because we've we've known for a while that we're both really big kurosawa fans so to be able to work this one in was really exciting too um and i'm, I'm so happy you got to see this one because yeah it just this movie does not deserve this weird reputation it has with kurosawa fans i would agree that it's a little bit slower than some of his other movies but that doesn't mean it's not entertaining I, i'm just enthralled by this film i'm happy you saw it and liked it I've also heard from various sources that this isn't one of his best. And I mean, I would agree. This is a 
4.9 star film. That's pretty low for a Kurosawa film. And <laughs> I can see where they're coming from. It's one of his worst films that I've ever seen. It's right down there with, you know, The Hidden Fortress. Hey, uh, I can't do I can't I can't follow you all the way. <laughs> another 4.8 film, you know, just a real stinker for a Kurosawa film. Our Patreon listeners are going to hear my opinion on that statement for sure. Fair enough. But um, uh, let me see if I can wrap up my thoughts. Every Kurosawa film has many thoughts. Kagemusha represents a turning point in Kurosawa's career. Really cool to see him get into color. His obsession with passing on the torch to the next generation and his cynicism about the state of the film industry in Japan on full display here. Like to see that. And it's just a really good drama. I love movies where mm-hmm. there are two people who look the same. And what are we going to do about it? Uh, if people think this is slow, there is apparently a international cut that is a bit quicker. They they cut out some things here and there. So, you know, maybe maybe that's what you need. Well, I don't endorse that recommendation. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to watch it, but I'm saying it exists. But... No, I love the pacing in this film. I wouldn't change. Right. I wouldn't change it. Yeah, I, I, more Kurosawa, if anything, because yeah. he's such a master. Takashi Shimura, longtime collaborator of Kurosawa, makes his very last film appearance in this extended version of the film. So you, you'd miss out on that. Oh, is is he is he the guy from is he Akiru? Yeah, he's Akiru. He's oh, the leader of the Seven yeah, Samurai. Yeah. Okay, okay, yes, yes, of course, I know, yes. Yeah, he is. He's barely in this movie. Was this his last movie? Very last film. Very last film. Not just with Kurosawa. Very last performance. Yeah. Oh, I'm a little emotional. He's such a good actor. He is. He barely has any lines because he was just very frail, very weak at the end of his life. But he he collaborated here uh, one last time with Kurosawa. And uh, yeah, I'm happy we did this for this episode because we both got to we got to get out some of our raw emotions on Kurosawa so we can be a little more refined for the Dreams episode. <laughs> Allegedly. I don't know, man. <laughs> no, the <laughs> Dreams episode might just be me reading the biography into the mic for an hour. We'll see how that goes. And I just sit here and cry and smoke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are we watching next week, though, Andrew, as we move into the 1980s? Next week, we are watching one that's been on my watch list for a while. We're watching Escape from New York from 19. 19- 1981. I have not seen it. I know it's a classic. Who who stars in Escape from New York? Is is it Kurt Russell? It is Kurt Russell. I love oh. Kurt Russell. Okay. <laughs> Cuz it's John Carpenter, right? Yeah. 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 See there are things I know about movies but it doesn't always get cemented until I see them. Yeah. Goodbye to our regular listeners. Y'all are wonderful and we really appreciate you and don't forget to give us five stars and a review. And uh, if you want to be seen as you know somebody who's a little bit extra special, feel free to join our Patreon. Uh, we have payment options on there. The link is always in our Facebook posts and we're going to be talking about Kurosawa a little more in depth, our favorites and least favorites, as Arthur mentioned earlier after the episode. So uh, for Patreon listeners, uh, I guess we're about to be talking to just you. And last but not least, thank you to Nathan Royal for our show's music. Andrew, I'll talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Escape from New York is on the Criterion channel. Mm-hmm.